Larry is an alcoholic. It's truly because of God's grace and the help of folks like yourselves and certainly the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It hadn't been necessary for me, nor have I had an occasion to take a drink of alcohol since the 18th of September, 1972. And, uh, thank you. And I'm very thankful for that. When I first started to do a little bit of talking around the groups in, in Dallas, uh, where I got sober, I would, uh, what I was in that, litany of how I managed to do that uh, with a, and that and for that I am grateful and then I would go on and make a uh, do another litany of what it meant uh, to be grateful and to convince you that I was indeed grateful uh, <laughs> And then my sponsor said, you know, you really make a big deal out of that being grateful. Uh, You don't need to tell us you're grateful. We'll know. We'll know how grateful you are by what we see you do and how you behave and what you do in alcoholics' lives. So don't be telling us that anymore. <laughs> and I thought, if I don't say that, what am I going to say? <laughs> so I'm thankful. I'm thankful for those things that I am directly benefited from. So that's many, many things to be thankful for. And my gratitude will always be expressed through my actions and my attitude. And I am thankful to be here. I want to thank uh, Bill for the call uh, and the invite. I think uh, the committee, uh, Dick and Peggy and Gary and Arthur, all the people here at the Cornhusker uh, who have made us feel so welcome here. You've always been, you've been so kind to us, and we appreciate that. When I got the call from Bill last fall, he introduced himself and he said, we'd like for you and Sam to come to the Cornhusker. And it was pretty evident right away that if she didn't agree to come, I wasn't coming. <laughs> he seemed to emphasize more that they wanted her up here than did me. Uh, and she wasn't home at the time. She was over in South Carolina with our daughter uh, looking after our granddaughter because our little potential alcoholic son-in-law uh, <laughs> was down in his back. Uh, and he may have been. I don't know. I didn't go see, so he may have been down in his back. I know we're not supposed to. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I know that or not. I don't I hear people say that we should never deem someone else an alcoholic. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going out on the limb on this guy. <laughs> he's got uh, he's got the stuff. <laughs> he just doesn't. Uh, I guess he just hasn't got beat up enough yet. Uh, but we don't uh, we don't say anything to him. Uh, and that's my job is not to say anything to him. 
Alcoholics Anonymous has afforded me and my family so many wonderful things. It, it's, it's not been an easy journey at times, but it's been a journey that we're able to make a step at a time with the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous ingrained in our lives. Our family, today our immediate family at, our, at, at home, the people who live under our roof is my wife Sam, myself, and that's a bonus, I get to live there too, uh, and my dog Bo. Uh, and somebody, I heard somebody say one time, I don't necessarily agree with it, it's the happiest day of your life would be uh, when all the kids left home and the dog died. Uh, but I don't agree with that because I've got, uh, our dog is really important to us. He didn't come up here and talk about that dog. Uh, but we're thankful for what we've got there. Uh, this has been a really great conference uh, up to now. Uh, and they, the speakers have all been just really outstanding. And uh, I've known these guys, uh, most of them, uh, that have been up here this weekend for a long, long time. And uh, they're good friends and, and men and women alike who I hold deep respect for. I've never given the talk in AA I wanted to give. I was really thinking uh, while I was waiting for my lunch today about what kind of talk that I'd really like to make this afternoon. Uh, I've wondered, I've questioned sometimes whether or not I should really get into the story. But there's a little voice in the back of my head that always says, you know, you know a lot of stuff about AA. You know, you've been, you've had all these wonderful experiences in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you wander off into that, what's going to happen to the new guy? He don't know anything about what he's talking about. So I hopefully the, the talks I'd give in Alcoholics Anonymous would have a message contained in there that would reach the new man or woman who may be uh, here today. If you're due to Alcoholics Anonymous, I can tell you this. If you'll stay and you'll do what you're told, ask is too weak for an alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I have to tell them what to do. Uh, but if you do what you, if you, if you follow examples and do what you're told, I can tell you this, that you are, you're an in for the ride of your life. You will find a life with more exciting than you could ever have dreamed. Uh, Peggy talked this morning about enthusiasm. I'm an enthusiastic member of Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes a little overly enthusiastic, but I'm an enthusiastic member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I was thinking yesterday afternoon, uh, uh, when Bob was talking, and and I really appreciate uh, Bob the, the work that's been done up here uh, this weekend so far. Was talking about you know fulfilling the primary purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for twelve step work. 
I would not be an Alcoholics Anonymous today if it were not for the twelfth step. I was hospitalized in a little treatment center on Gaston Avenue in Dallas, Texas in the fall of 1972 and still trying to decide even after two or three weeks if I was really an alcoholic. I remember talking to the counselor. I talked to the counselor a lot. Uh, I counseled him a, a lot more than he did me. I had this guy... I tell you, I, I, I respect people who, who work in, in that area. I tried that myself. I actually tried that myself early in sobriety. At three months sober, I was absolutely convinced that my destiny in life had always been to be an alcoholism counselor. <laughs> I work with guys in treatment centers today, and they're telling me that when they had to get out, they want to go to school and be a counselor. Uh, I guess they're so infatuated with the role of the counselor in there, I... I don't know why, but I, I actually I went ahead and did that and tried that out, but uh, that, was not, uh, that was not what I was supposed to do. I believe today that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm in a job today that I did not want and I did not ask for. I had a job. I wasn't making a lot of money, but that wasn't important because my wife had a good job. <laughs> and when I met her, she had four jobs. She had a main job with a phone company. She'll tell you about that later. Then she had three part-time jobs. And I run a background check on her. And uh, she had great credit. And I thought, this is a woman of my dreams. <laughs> you know, this is well, looking for her. I'll tell you a little bit how I came about to, to meet Sam. But... Uh, Man, I was in that hospital, and a, and a little guy came and gave a talk one Friday night. They had all the patients and the families gathered in there, and I never, uh, I never heard anything like I was hearing that night. And he actually pulled me to the edge of my chair, and I listened intently to what he was saying. And at that time, he had a little over five years of sobriety. And at the end of the meeting, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you in a little bit, I'm going to, I'll get, we'll take a few drinks here in a little bit and wallow around in that for a while, but I remember I was so impressed with this guy, and I was, I'm, I'll tell you this for the sake of the newcomer, the older members already know this, but I was so impressed with this guy that I, I just, I made it a point to be sure and impress him with something I had or had done when the meeting was over. And everybody was in the line thanking him for the talk. And I was listening to what they were saying so I would know what to say because it was the first time I'd ever done that. And I put my hand out and I thanked him for his talk. And I said, and by the way, this is not the first time that I have quit drinking. And he said, is that right? <laughs> and I said, yes, that's right. And I went, was going to explain it to him, and someone else came along, started talking to him. They walked off, left me standing there talking to myself. <laughs> but some, something happened. I had, I had said something or, or some actions that he saw in me convinced him that I was keenly interested in what had happened that Friday night in that meeting. 
in the dining room of this treatment center. And when we got back upstairs, we'd all kind of settled in to watch a little TV to finish off the night, and uh, they always had sandwiches and stuff up there. But anyhow, this man got off the elevator and walked directly toward me and sat down and started to talking. Uninvited, but in, but encouraged by something that someone said. And that someone was me that night. And that he was, he was carrying out, I believe, what is laid out in plain English in the twelfth step of our program. Carry this message to alcoholics. And he'd found him one to carry it to. And we weren't scarce. There were a lot of us around. But, uh, and he sat for over two hours and talked to me, told me, didn't never talked about my drinking, but we talked about his. Or he did. And then, and he told me, he talked about the steps. He filled in a lot of the blanks from the talk he had made that night. I was, he let me ask him questions. And then he laid out the plan. He asked me a question that I'd never been asked before. And I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this question tonight. If, if you're new, if no one's ever asked you this question, I'd share this question with you. His question to me was, do you like being sober? I, nobody had ever asked me that before. And I never really gave him any good reason to ask me that before. And I said, yes, I do. And then he said, if you want to stay sober, here's what you're doing. He laid out a plan. And I've been following that plan ever since. It was a simple plan. And he said it, it sounded too simple, and it really isn't as simple as it sounds, but it's still a simple plan. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to get to meetings as many as you can get to. Get a sponsor. Take and use the steps in your life. Attach yourself to a group. And work with others. He said, if you'll do those things, you never have to take a drink for as long as you live. If you'll do those things. Now that sounds pretty simple, but when you break that down and you get and you dig into that to see what all that involves, it involves a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of work involved in that. Uh, I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to do this. This isn't why I came here. And what an honor and a privilege it is to get asked to stand before any group of alcoholics and their families to share a little bit of my life with you. On Wednesday afternoons for the last few years, I spend most of my Wednesday afternoons in a treatment center. And used to be on Saturdays, but now on Fridays, two or three Fridays a month, I make a trip to a prison. If I ever lose the willingness to do those things, then I don't deserve to be here. And that's just that's what I was taught to do, was to carry the message. Now, to the story. I took my first drink when I was 15 years old, and I was a social drinker for about 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> and I can say that, and it's true. Because that night we did what social drinkers do. A bunch of kids in an 
old Ford car on the way to a high school football game, stopped off at a drive-in uh, beer joint. Over, I was born and raised in a cotton mill village in North Carolina, and, and we we always always still refer to places like that as beer joints. And but we stopped this drive-in beer joint, and everybody ordered a beer and asked me what I'd like, and I said I have one of those too. And somebody handed me back a big tall can of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Oh, I, me too. I tell you, it's the awfulest tasting stuff I ever put in my mouth. And uh, God, it tasted awful. But I've, after about three slugs of that, taste is no longer an issue. Uh, I mean, I, and that's all I drank that night. And I'm the only guy in that car that ended up my alcoholic synonymous. I'm the only guy in that car that ever developed a need to end up my alcoholic synonymous. I'm the only guy in that car that that, that 20 ounces of, of beer and whatever the alcohol content in that, that's probably a couple ounces equal to a couple ounces of whiskey probably, but uh, I, it, it did something to me. It didn't do anybody else. I couldn't wait to get back. And I got back to that as soon as I can and as often as I could until I got to you. And I, now I must tell you that I quit drinking on July the 5th 1959. That's when I quit drinking. I stopped drinking on the 18th of September, 1972. <laughs> now, if you understand that, please don't leave. You have come to where you belong. <laughs> took me 13 years to stop after I quit. All it took you is it took me that long. In the summer of 1959... When I quit drinking forever, I surely am not the only guy in the room here who quit drinking forever. And I made a solemn oath, a conscious decision to myself that afternoon that I would never drink again, ever. For the rest of my life, I'm done. It, I just wasn't having much luck with it. And on the 4th of July, the night of the July 4th, Another fellow and I were in his car. I didn't have a car. I'd just I'd been out of the army for since March, every three or four months. I'd been out of the military. Was working in a cotton mill there at home, and we always took off that week. Yeah, we're out celebrating our independence that day, and we're running up and down the roads to different joints. And somewhere over around midnight that night, we're coming down US 74, and US 74 is a highway that connects the mountains to the coast in North Carolina. And we have two major highways that run through there, and one's US 1 and one's US 74. And, and we're coming down US 74, and Earl looks over at me and he says, What do you say we stop up at Johnny's and get some coffee? I says, Fine with me. I didn't know we were already there. And he, he, it wasn't like a left turn, but he just kind of, veered off to the left and crossed the the oncoming traffic lane and crossed that lane and hit the wet gravel parking lot of this truck stop, lost control of the car, and we had a semi head on. Always found that dramatic art drama. Uh, and for, I had for a long time I'd tell that story and they'd just move on, but let me tell you the truth of the matter is that we did hit the semi, but the semi was parked at the fuel tanks. <laughs> that kind of takes all the steam out of the story. You know? <laughs> Just a couple of drugs sliding around a parking lot running into trucks, you know. 
Whatever you get, you give you something to think about, though. One of my favorite people in Alcoholics Anonymous was a man I met when I was nine months over. His name was Norm Alby. And he was really well known in these parts up here, I know. I just absolutely loved him and loved his talking. But he talked a lot about timing. Well, it was seconds and inches, but timing. Timing is, is one of the dynamics. Really, in living itself, is timing. Timing was real important that night for this alcoholic. When I thought about that, after I got sober and I looked back over my life, I began to kind of recall some of the incidents that had taken place in my life and through the inventory process and, the, and just my own thinking sometimes, which isn't always good. But I thought about that night. Had we stayed at the last place, say, five minutes longer, and made that decision five minutes later, it's, it's pretty reasonable to believe that we would have hit that truck as he was coming out of that, that uh, truck stop. And that was, that scared the stuff out of me. But anyway, I want to get through this real quick. They carried us, they carried me to the hospital. I had to go to the hospital. I had, had got bunged up a little bit, you know. And, had a great big knot on my head. So they get me over to the hospital and they treat me, check me out. I'm okay except for this little doc said I had a little, probably had a concussion, a little light concussion. And on the way out of the hospital, it's always been important to me. I don't know if it's important to you, but this part of, of that night became really important to me later on. As we were leaving the hospital, leaving the emergency room, the little doctor handed me one of those little paper cups and it had three little yellow pills in it. And he said, now, Mr. Johnson, when you get home, you might have trouble sleeping. If you do, just take one of these and it'll help you sleep. Now, I know that's what that guy said. But by the time I got home, I still I, re- I got that, those little pills out and I looked at them and I said, now, the doctor said... When you get home, you're going to have trouble sleeping. And if you'll take these pills, they'll help you sleep. And so I took all three of them. I mean, they were a little bitty anyhow. One couldn't have possibly done a whole lot of good. And, and, I, and he was right, and I slept. And I slept till that afternoon, and that's when I came to. Uh, and that pretty well wrap up my drug story, too, by the way. So we'll be getting back into that again. Uh, That afternoon is when I made a, I look back over the, the five short years I'd been drinking and all the trouble I'd had and made a conscious decision to never drink again. Felt so good about that. God, it feels good. Doesn't it feel good? I don't know. Maybe you've had this. When you, when you decide to change something in your life that's not working for you and you decide to change it, just that alone gives you a great feeling about yourself. I felt really good about what I had just decided to do. And I don't know about you, but that's all alcoholic here. I mean, I can't do anything that's worthwhile or good without going to tell somebody. <laughs> and the closest people to tell were my mom and dad, and I went into their room and told them about this monumental decision and great sacrifice I was, was, was making. And they were absolutely delighted. A few weeks later, I... Saw a girl sitting in a porch swing up the street. I hadn't seen her since she was a little bitty. And uh, I was coming 
we're coming home from a ball game. Uh, I've been playing a little baseball, and and I looked over there and I asked this guy. Well, I said, "Who is that? Who is that?" And he said, uh, "Well, that's Betty Lou." And I didn't remember Betty Lou ever looking like that, and uh, just kind of. I mean, she was as far as me as the back of that room, but I saw all I needed to see. And uh, I got home, and uh, I, I mean, I, I'm colorblind, but I knew those were pink shorts. And uh, I got home, and I called her and told her I'd be up to see her later that that evening. And I didn't even ask her if it was all right. Now, I was smitten with this gal, and I went up and sat on the porch with her a little bit that night. And we started a courting a little bit, and... In the spring of 1960, uh, she and I were married. If she had, a, I won't say any more than this, but if she had been in that Al-Anon meeting with Larsine and her Al-Anon friends that night when that question was asked, uh, she would have raised her hand as well. Uh, you'd have had to hurt Larsine's talk to know what I'm talking about. Uh, but she, the question was, how many gals in here got married or were pregnant when they got married? Uh, and anyhow, that's what it was. Betty and I got married in, the, in April of 1960. I don't have any way of proving this. But I am confident that the Secretary of War signed our marriage papers. <laughs> now, we were, we were fine, it seemed, until we did that, we got married. And then the rules started changing. And, uh, the, we, we just started, Started to, she was a fighter. And I was much of a fighter. Uh, I, I did some boxing when I was a kid, but that's not the same as being a, a fighter. And it was, she liked to fight. She, she was a little bit of gal. She wasn't, she, I guarantee she wasn't any, wasn't any bigger than Peg. But she would hit you. If you did anything to upset her, she'd hit you. And when she hit me a lot, and it didn't have anything for battered husbands in those days uh, that I could go to. So all I needed to do was pack a gear and leave. And I can't tell you how many times I packed a bag and left, and I was back four dark some days, some days be two or three days. But anyhow, this, uh, well, I mean, the, the, the war was on. Now, we didn't fight all the time. We had two wonderful children, so, I mean, we did have some ceasefire from time to time, you know. And, uh, the only way, the best way, I have to go ahead and describe this marriage to you, and then I'll move on. But it was a lot like our relationship, if you could call it that. It was really more of an arrangement than a relationship. Uh, it was like, if you won't hit me anymore, I won't say those things. But it, uh, and I don't, I've, I'm not, I've never apologized for anything I've said from one of these podiums. I don't think I've ever had to apologize. I won't apologize for this. But, but just as an example, it was a lot like a newcomer relationship in AA. Now, I'm not talking about relationships that develop over time with people with some solid sobriety, but I'm not newcomers. It was kind of like, have you ever seen one of those develop? It's, it's interesting to watch. You watch a guy, and he'll ease up to a girl that we've never seen in the group before. She's brand new. And he ain't got a sponsor yet, or at least ain't nobody in our group sponsoring him. And you can eavesdrop on a conversation. It'll go something like this. He'll say to her, how much time you got in? And she'll say, 30 days. 
Wow. How much time you got here? I got 90 days. <laughs> and then they kind of wander off. I sponsored a guy a few years ago that came to my office one day, brought his girlfriend with him. I'd never met her before. She was new. And uh, he said, Larry, I just wanted to come by and have you, have you meet her uh, and let you know that we're going to move in together. I said, why are you going to do that? He said, well, we just feel like it's God's will. My question to this guy is, why are you willing to blame God on this coming disaster? <laughs> so in short, that relationship was, Betty and I, it was kind of like two ticks and no dog. <laughs> we just constantly... Sucking the life out of each other, you know. <laughs> I walked away from that marriage after five years. I went up to Greensboro, North Carolina. I figured uh, I needed to relocate. So I was going to relocate in Greensboro, North Carolina. I was in the retail furniture business at that time, and I got out of the cotton mill and was working at a retail furniture store, and I Went and I interviewed for a job at this uh, this company. It had three or four stores there on the, between uh, North South, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, and and I interviewed uh, for the job. And, and and I knew I'd done good on the interview. Uh, you always know if you're doing it. You know you're doing well on the interview or not. I mean, the guy asked the questions, I answered them, and they were answered correctly, timely. It was it was a good interview. And I was confident that if they were going to hire anybody, it wouldn't be any reason why they wouldn't hire me. Because I was well qualified for the job that they were offered up. And after the interview, he pushed back from his, from the desk and he said, Larry, I need to ask you one more question. And I, and I don't think this was on the interview list. And I said, what's that? He said, do you drink? And I said, no, I don't. Well, I wasn't drinking that day. <laughs> and hadn't had anything to drink for a while. I was on my second quitting forever. My first forever, by the way, lasted three years. My second forever lasted 18 months. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they said, you know, you don't have to quit drinking. You just have to stop drinking and just do it a day at a time. And that, that one has lasted for almost 39 years. There's a lot of difference in just stopping today and then doing what we have to do. But anyhow, I, he said, uh, do you drink? I said, no, I don't drink. He said, good. Well, I knew it was good because Betty asked me that the first night I talked to her. She said, Larry, do you drink? And I said, no. She said, good. And I said, that's the end of it. I didn't ask her why she... But this, this, this afternoon, I asked this guy, I said, why did you ask me that? He said, because the man you're going to replace in our company is an alcoholic and we're not hiring any more of those. And I said, hey, I don't blame you. I wouldn't hire one of them either. I... And I gave them half a dozen good reasons why they shouldn't be any alcoholics working in our company. 
So he put me to work in a store over in Burlington, North Carolina. I was there about I was there six months, and during the next six months, Betty, Betty had uh, filed all the necessary papers to keep me from coming back to the house, and had filed for went to the lawyer and got the divorce proceedings started, and that deal was pretty well. We had two kids. We had my son Daryl, who at the time was was four years old, and our daughter Kimberly, who was was still an infant. Now, Kim was born. Uh, in October 1964, this was in 65, and one afternoon, I'm out on the floor, and Ed comes out and says, it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, and we usually close at 6 on Saturday, and he said, Larry, we're going to close at 5.30 today instead of 6. Uh, we've had a pretty good week, and J.D. and Will have gone down to the liquor store to get a bottle and want to stop by the office and have a drink with us. And I said, Ed, you know, I don't drink. He said, I know. Stop by about 5.30 and have a drink with us. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder what that, about that he didn't understand. I mean, I thought it made it pretty plain. So I said, Ed, you know, I don't drink. He said, son, I know, I know you don't drink. We're just going to have a drink. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, if that's all it's going to be. Couldn't hurt anything. Uh, so from 3 o'clock to 5.30 that afternoon, I'm pacing the floor. Now, Ed and J.D. and Will are just going about and doing their work. This 5.30 party, I mean, it's already a party in my mind. <laughs> Doesn't mean a thing to them, it's just the, and, and, but it meant something to me. And so, I, you know, and I just, I just really anticipated all that. And I was, I was, boy, if I couldn't wait, 5.30 hit, and man, I'm headed to the office. I walk in the office, and there on the desk, was some glasses or cups and some ice and some juice and there's Ed and J.D. and Will and then there's my chair. And right in the middle of the desk is the bottle. They had bought a pint. I immediately did the math on that pint. And I'm the only guy in the room doing the math. I assure you that. And I'm thinking, well, you know, he's, I guess he, that's, he's right. We're just going to have a drink. <laughs> so we finish off the bottle. And here's the upshot of that drink. Ed got in his car and went home to his family. Now, I didn't follow Ed home, but I know that's what Ed did. what he always did. And J.D. and Will got in their car and went home to their families and didn't follow them either, but I know they did. That's what they always did. And I hated California. And that's what I do when I drink, is I leave town. I didn't like that rotten town to start with. Didn't like the job, didn't like none of them. And a guy offered me an opportunity to go to California, and he said, would you like to go to California? And I said, I have always wanted to go to California. <laughs> I never really thought about it, and he brought it up. But it sounded like a good idea. So we head out to California. And I'm, I lived in my head. I'm, that's where I lived, was in my head. It's a fantasy world up there. And I, I was able to somehow push back the things that were important in my life and enter into this fantasy land. 
and try to survive there. It's a wonderful place if you can stay there. But it's most of the time it's just momentary. And But I was just a man, California, God, what's well, going to be great? And I already figured when I got out there what I was going to do. Now, I know that I'm leaving behind, and this was it's important that I tell you this. If you, and you may be keeping up, you may be not. Uh, but I'm leaving behind a woman who's divorcing me for good reasons and two children. A life that took 26 years to establish. And I'm leaving all that behind. I'm not thinking about that, but that's what, in reality, what was taking place. And as we're going across the highways and interstates headed out to the coast, the other coast, I'm thinking what I'll do is when I get to California, this is in the 60s, the mid-60s, and it was really jumping back in those days. And a lot of you crowd like these get a lot of head nods on that because they understand. And I couldn't wait to get out and hang out with some of them dudes in California. Because we didn't have any dudes in Carolina. We had a lot of dudes out in California. And it had people out there that were letting the men were letting their hair grow long and cutting off their britches and wearing shoes like Steve's got. And uh, <laughs> I waited all this time to say something about it. You know, wearing the sandals, and I thought that would be great. And I could do that and get me some of them cool shades and just kind of hang out with these cats until I can find myself. Because <laughs> we're all trying to find ourselves, nobody going anywhere. I have a sign, there's a sign in a little hamburger joint in Mesquite, Texas. I can't ever tell us getting this part of the story without thinking about that sign because it's so fitting. It says, I have gone to find myself. Should I return before I get back, please have me wait. <laughs> I've looked at my wife that first time I saw I said, I've got to use that. Uh, but it was going to be wonderful. And what I'd do is I'd get out there and get things, kind of get kind of settled in and get a job and make a lot of money. And then it'd give me a couple of months. And i go back over to North Carolina and I'll... I'll go see Betty, and I'll go see the kids, and I'll sit down with them, and I'll give them some money. That'll fix it. I'll give them some money, and I'll explain to them about the turmoil in my life, you know. And I've quit, you know, and I would have, by then, I would have quit drinking again, I'm sure. And I'll just fix this deal. I spent a lot, large portion of my life thinking that I could fix the things that were wrong in my life with some money or some more stuff. Doesn't fix anything. It's an inside job. Eh? It's got to happen in here before things get okay out there. It's got to get okay in here. Then it seems like everything's okay out there. Well, we on our trip to California, we made it all the way to Fort Worth. And uh, that's where that story ends. So... I never finished anything I ever started. Till I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I can't remember one project that I ever completed until I got here. And I, I know that I am different 
and have been for many, many years, because if I start something, I don't let it go until it's finished. And that's change. And change was absolutely necessary for me. See, now I end up in Fort Worth, and I got on now. I don't like Fort Worth. Go to Dallas, and I figured Dallas got to be better than Fort Worth. We come through Dallas on the way to Fort Worth. Looked pretty good to me. So I go to Dallas. I got in the car business. I'm selling cars. I'm the kind of guy that I need to speed this up. I'm the kind of guy. I'm the first guy there every morning. I'm the last guy to leave at night. And while I'm there, I work ten times harder than the guy next to me because I think I have to. You maybe understand that. And hard work pays off. Now, nobody knew. All they knew about me was my name was Larry Johnson, and I had come over to Texas from North Carolina. That's all they needed. It's all they needed to know. I could, Back in those days, if you wanted a job selling cars, if they put a mirror under your nose and it fogged up at all, you were in. <laughs> and, and through hard work, I made a lot of money. I made more money than I'd ever seen. I didn't know that it was possible to earn that kind of money. And I got promotions. Uh, it wasn't long before I was an assistant manager of one of the dealerships. And in 1967, the guy handed me the keys to a dealership. And I was now general sales manager of this dealership. In January of 1966, I met a girl. She and I went out on a blind date, and then we started to date in some. I wish I could say we had a courtship, but I, it wasn't, it was anything but it was, it, courtships are storybook stuff. And this, uh, this journey that Sam and I had for about 15 or 16 months prior to, uh, getting married was not storybook. Uh, it was just two sick people. It was, uh, you know, as I've heard her say, you know, the the horns in my head fit the holes in her head. Uh, but Sam and I met in the middle of January 1966, and in, in, the, in the spring of 1967, uh, May the 27th, 1967, Sam and I were married. I'll tell you, I don't, sure, uh, I don't know, there's, there's no such thing, no books have been written, no pamphlets have been published on the typical alcoholic wedding day. But if anybody is thinking about doing that, I'd like to submit ours for consideration. <laughs> now, this is the 27th of May, 1967. At 7 o'clock on Saturday morning, she come down and got me out of jail. <laughs> and it wasn't the first time she'd done that. It wasn't going to be the last time she'd done that. But there did come a last time. But anyhow, she come down and get me out of jail. On the way home from jail, I say to her, do you know what we should do? And she said, yeah, I know what we should do. We should get married and stop all this nonsense. <laughs> now, I, I can assure you that is not what I was going to say. <laughs> I lost my train of thought and I never regained it. I don't know what. I probably, I probably would have said, if she'd have said what, I'd probably say we need to stop at Red Colons and get a bottle, of, get a, get some, get some, something to drink. Cause I've been in jail all night and I hadn't had a drink in some, Probably eight or ten hours. That was a long time. So anyway, you know, I thought about what she said. That, uh, I figured I gave it at least ten minutes consideration, probably more like twenty seconds. And I said, you know, you're probably right. I think we should do that. So we go home. Go to my. She takes me home. Uh, and 
gets to be cleaned up, calls the boss, tell him I'm not feeling well, I'm not coming to work today. Uh, she called. I didn't call. She called. I mean, I told you, this was my dream girl here. She made all my phone calls and everything. Trained her. She was ready for Alamon. I guarantee you when she got here. There was no question about that. But So we make the phone calls. We go over to a jewelry store where she had a credit account. And we got some rings and we called some friends and we drove to Durant, Oklahoma and got married by a used car salesman. <laughs> now, I thought that was appropriate. And we've been married ever since. This past... May 27th, we celebrated 44 years of continuous marriage. And imagine that. <laughs> and this marriage has withstood a lot. It has withstood near tragedy. And we were married right after I got that big promotion. I called her one afternoon from the dealership, and I said, I'll be home around uh, 6, 6.30, 7 at the latest for sure. I'm going down and have a couple of beers with the guys. And and I did. I went down and had a couple of beers with the guys. I don't know what happened to them. I don't remember much about what happened to me. I'm like listening to Edith talk last night. You know, you'd have to handcuff me to the bed or something to keep me from going somewhere once I poured a drink in. I tried drinking it. I tried to be a home drinker. I can't do that. Total failure at being a home drinker. Some men, I've heard men say, and they drink, some of them say they drink fighting whiskey. Some say they drink loving whiskey. And I drink, let's go somewhere whiskey. <laughs> we can't stay here. There's nothing here. There's nothing, nothing ever there that I wasn't sure I could find something better if I went somewhere. Anyhow, uh, I came staggering home that morning about 9 or 9.30 that Sunday morning and opened the door. And I knew when I opened the door to go inside, it should be standing on the other side door waiting on me. But she wasn't. And so I go looking for her. And I find her in the bedroom, lying on the bed. I learned a real lesson. I learned a couple of lessons that morning, and I'll tell you about them. I learned the difference between being on a bed and in a bed. Never had paid much attention to that. But she's lying on a bed, and in my this keen alcoholic mind of mind, I'm thinking she's in bed. She been she hadn't been to bed. She's fully clothed, shoes and all. And I walk in that bedroom, she looks at me and I look at her and she doesn't see anything, I don't see anything. So I leave the room, come back in the room, and I'm now ready to join her in bed. That she's not in. And I get in the bed, under the covers. And I'm in the bed, she gets off the bed. She gets off the bed, she opens the door to her night table, and pulls out a 38 pistol. <laughs> it's amazing how quick the dynamics change. <laughs> And I began now watching her with much anticipation. <laughs> and then I remembered, I remembered, don't panic, that pistol's not loaded. I remembered taking all of the bullets out of it. And she remembered taking all the bullets out of it. So she reaches back in the drawer and she takes out two bullets. 
and she pushes the lever, the wheel falls open, she slides those two rounds in there, she closes it back up, she pulls the hammer back, lines one up with a firing pin, and I hear it click. And my only thought was, somebody needs to create some kind of dialogue. Uh, <laughs> so far, nothing had been said, and I... And I raised my hand, and I'm sure like a third grader, and got permission to speak. And I said, can I ask you a question? Because I was confused. I wasn't confused about what was fixing to happen. I wasn't at all confused about that. But I had a question about those two bullets. And she said, yeah, go ahead. I said, why did you just put two bullets in that gun? She said, Larry, before I answer that, let me tell you something. I can't live like this. We're not going to live this way. It's we. We're not going to live like this. I can't do I can't do another night like this. So to answer to your question, of course, the dialogue was much longer than that. But she said, to answer your question... Is that one of these bullets is for you and the other one is for me? Because we are not going to live like this. First time Sam ever heard me share that part of my story, we're driving home from the meeting that night. It was a group there in Dallas, and we're driving home from the meeting. She said, Larry, I need to talk to you about something. I hate that. I said, okay. She said, I want to talk to you about the talk you made tonight. And I said, all right. And she said, when you related that incident with that gun, you related that almost precisely the way I remember it. And that made me feel pretty good. But she said, i got to tell you something. I've been wanting to tell you this for years, and the opportunity just never presented itself, and now it's going to be by probably my best opportunity ever to tell you the truth about what was going on that morning. And I said, what is that? And she said, Larry, the truth is that I never intended to use my bullet. (laughs) (laughs) In Alcoholics Anonymous, we call that ego deflation at depth. (laughs) Five years, five years rolled by. In those next five, in the next three years, the big jobs continued to come. The big money was rolling. Driving the big cars. Custom ordered all my cars that I drove. Uh, the dealership furnished me whatever I wanted to drive, whatever the highest price model of what we sold was what I drove. It had to be big and long and deep breathing, or I didn't want anything to do with it, you know. And, but I'm still living in this fantasy world. It ain't real. It just ain't real. And you can only live with that for so long. I was able to live with it for a little over seven years. Because the reality of all this semen success was down inside that guy that looked like a young man on his way to the top. Was one of the more, probably the most fear-driven Individuals that you could imagine. I was so afraid. I was afraid people would find out what a louse I had really become. 
And after all that was gone, the car's gone, the job's gone, the house's gone, it's all gone. There's me and her and a soon-to-be two-year-old little type. And we're living in two rooms that her mother was kind enough to let us live in. It was a Sunday night, the night of September 17, 1972. Three weeks before that, I had gotten DWI. I got my last DWI up to this point. And I remember calling her from the jail that night and telling her, I said, and I, I'd give her the instructions. I said, you need to be here at 7 o'clock that morning when the judge gets here, and that's when the arraignments are, and that's when you can post my bond or get the lawyer and post my bond. She said, i got to be at work at 7 o'clock in the morning. Hung the phone up. So I called my own lawyer. So I called the lawyer's wife, answers the phone. Lucille's his wife. I said, Lucille, is Leon there? And she said, no, who is this? I said, it's Larry Johnson. She said, Larry, Leon died last October. Hung the phone up. I looked at my new business partner that was sitting there on the bench with me. <laughs> you always get a business partner when you're in jail. But gee whiz, this is where you vast enterprises are formed. <laughs> he said, "Well, when do you think you can get out?" I said, "Maybe never. I don't know when I'll get out." He said, "What happened?" I said, "Well, my wife hung up on me. And my lawyer died. I don't know how much chance I got of getting out of here." But then I got out, obviously. And three weeks later, I was laying on the floor on my back, looking up. I don't know how I got there, it's not important. But something was going on inside of me that had never happened before. I knew, and I knew this at a cellular level, that my life had just ended. I couldn't do this anymore. Didn't have anything to do with going to jail, not going to jail, losing jobs, anything, anything at all to do. That's what was going on inside of me. I believe that alcoholism is internal rather than all the external things that we do. I think it's, it's internal. It's inside. It's a human condition, and it's in here. And that had woke up that night. There was a little piece of velvet that I believe that God puts down in every inside every one of his kids. And some of us are fortunate enough to have a time in our life where we're able to reach down and touch that little bit of velvet. And no matter how much booze I drink or drugs or anything that I do, he doesn't let that get solved. And I believe that's what that in my just my way, I believe that came to life that night. And I'd been drunk for three or four weeks. And I was only and I looked up at her. She was standing there. It, it had been a scene, and she had taken our little girl back to her mother's bedroom for her to watch. And I just looked up at her, to her, and I said, Sam, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I need some help. Would you please find me some help? And she said, Who would you like me to call? I said, I don't know. I don't know who to call. They were dawned on me to call Alcoholics Anonymous. They'd try to throw the net on. They tried to net me in, uh, in 1970 at the state hospital. And I wouldn't have any part of that. And the TV was on. 
And on the TV was a commercial, and it was a simple commercial. It simply said, the Center Hospital for the Treatment of Alcoholism. If you have a problem with alcohol, please call this number. And I said, well, go call those people. And so she did. And so here we are. It's funny when she hung the phone up. She'd made an appointment for us to go see this man the next day. And she put her coat on, started out the door. And I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to get something to drink. I've been, for at least a good hour, I, that's what the fight had been over. And I said, why are you going to do that? She said, because he said to. I think, well, I don't know this guy, but I'm sure we're, he and I are going, we're going to get along, I can tell you that. Now, it's, <laughs> we finally met somebody that really understands the situation. <laughs> And little did I know how much he understood the situation. This guy was himself an alcoholic. And when I met him the next day, I learned that he'd been, he was separated from his last drink some five and a half years prior to that. He put me in his hospital and introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Or they came. I never called AA. Never had to. AA came to me. You know, I don't know. I hope, I hope that I'm a guy that would be able to have someone say that someday. That I didn't have, I didn't call AA. They came to me. Because we gotta go. We gotta go where they're at. Or we may never see them if we don't go where they're at. I've had the privilege of a couple of, three times of going to Las Vegas and hanging out with Bob and and, he, and I tell you, he knows this. I'm, I'm one of my favorite parts of that that visit is going to them detox centers. And maybe getting knee to knee and eyeball to eyeball one of them little drugs down there. That's what it's all about. And because of my willingness to do that, and my willingness to take and use the steps, and, and I started doing taking the steps and and doing the inventory and and getting into the amends process, and I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about this, and I'm going to shut up. When I got to the amends, I thought, uh-uh. uh-uh. I, so, I mean, I'll pay the guy the money on him. I mean, oh, this guy, that guy, that guy. I mean, I owed, I, I owed about a tenth of what I thought I owed. But I got it all paid. But I can't go to North Carolina. It's been... Now, by the time I'm there, it's been eight years. I can't, I can't go back there. And I tell my spouse, I said, I can't, uh, I said, Spencer, I can't do this. I can't go to North Carolina. I just can't do it. He said, why not? Did you kill somebody? I said, no, I didn't kill anybody. But I, I said, you still don't understand. <laughs> I just didn't think he understood. But boy, he understood. I remember the first time I ever heard Clancy talk, he said, the one flag we'll all march under is my case is different. You just don't understand. He said, Larry, we talk about freedom in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's real, but you're not going to experience that. Because until you clean it all up, son, I mean, all of it, you got to clean it all up, you're never going to experience the freedom that we 
happily and joyfully talk about here in Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, you've got to do that. I said, well, I can't. He said, I don't know where you can or not, but you don't have to. you got to do it. It's something you have to do. Because of God's grace and the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and the power of the steps and good sponsorship, I was able to sit down one day and write a letter to Betty, the first word she had heard from me in over eight years. I can tell you now, this is I, I did things I was ashamed of, and this is one of the things I did. I was so I was so I think my probably as much as the fear in it itself was a shame. And I sent that letter off, and on Monday Betty called me and and she said, We got your letter today and we wanted to call. When I answered the phone, she said, Larry, and I said, Yes, she said, This is Betty, and I just was petrified. I couldn't think of anything to say, and I said, all I could think of to say was, well, what's going on? <laughs> she'd been on her toes, she'd have probably told me what was going on. Uh, she said, we got your letter, and we read it, and we wanted to call, and we was her, and my son, Daryl, and my daughter, Kimberly, and we talked that afternoon on the phone. I'd never had a conversation with my daughter, Kim. She was 10 months old when I left. And she allowed me to, I had, it was my first committed phone call in AA. I was to call every Monday night at 7 o'clock prior to going to my Monday night meeting. And I called every Monday night at 7 o'clock right on the button and talked to my kids. Thanksgiving weekend, the weekend prior to Thanksgiving, 1974, my wife Sam and our daughter Lori made a trip out to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Because of the kindness of a man in Alcoholics Anonymous, who will forever remain anonymous. Walked up to me shortly after that letter was done in the phone calls and handed me an envelope one day, and it was two first-class round-trip tickets from Charlotte, North Carolina, Dallas, Texas, one for Daryl Johnson and one for Kimberly Johnson, my children. And we went out and met them at the airport. I remember telling the gate attendant, there's two kids on the airplane, and I'm not sure if they walk out with a crowd, I'd recognize them. And so they held them back, and they come off last. And they spent five days with us. And I lived, I was absolutely horrified the whole time they were here. And they asked the questions that I was afraid they were going to ask, and I answered them as best as I could. And so we started. We started reaping the benefits of one of the great miracles in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's when whole families are put back together through the facilities of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Aldon family groups. 
and we have had an ongoing relationship. My son and I don't have a lot going on these days. He's got his own problems. Don't go into that. But when our girls uh, and my wife, Sam, uh, I've been so, so blessed. When you can walk in your home, and this is a real blessing, when I walk in my home, whether coming in from work or a meeting or one of these trips or, or wherever, and I look at her and she looks at me and I can feel her love for me and my love for her. What a blessing. And God's been awfully good to us. And we've enjoyed a lot. God knows we've been blessed so much. And I'm so glad that I didn't get what I deserved. (laughs) But I live today as a thankful and joyful recipient of what Alcoholics Anonymous has given to me and a recipient of God's grace. Thank you very much.